Welcome to Street Smart Success, where real estate entrepreneurs share their backgrounds, experience, and lessons learned. This is Roger Becker, your host. Learn with me as I drill down with guests about their paths to success and what they're doing now. So today we have with us a a young gentleman who I happened to have met last month at a family office conference. And uh, we had a uh, wonderful conversation. Uh, We both happen to be uh, native Clevelanders of, as I say, on the South Shore of Lake Erie, big Browns fans. So we're used to disappointment in life. And he is in in the uh, flipping space of small residential properties, unlike I've never seen. So I'm been super, super excited to have this conversation. He is the managing director of Tura Capital. He is Ray Hyman. Ray, welcome to Street Smart Success. Awesome. Thanks, Roger. I appreciate you having me on here. It's uh, great content that I've been digging in over the last you know four or five months since I got on to you guys here and you know some off the beaten path stuff and it's just fantastic. Yeah. Appreciate that. Well, uh, you know the first question I have is is not real estate. You know, we've covered that you're you're a native Clevelander, which is always near and dear to my heart. But when you went to NYU, you were a philosophy and math major and I found that to be very very interesting. And so what was what, why philosophy and like how many guys are math and philosophy? Yeah. So, uh, I, I was actually a couple of subway stops up at, uh, at Columbia there, but I honestly, um, you know, went into college. Did I say NYU? Yes. I'm not cool enough to go there. <laughs> <laughs> I tried to get into their parties, you know, they wouldn't let me in. Well, egg on my face. What a, what a embarrassment. I'm sorry, Columbia, and get and continue. I apologize. So I, I was in the Upper West Side with all the other nerds, and uh, I, <laughs> I, you know, studied a bunch of different things in my first year or two of college. And I tried econ, you know, dabbled in physics. My my mom's a doctor; she was always trying to get me to do bio. I took a you know a couple semesters of that, but um, ultimately, math and philosophy just felt like the most challenging and interesting subjects. Um, there wasn't a lot of overlap between those two pretty different crowd of folks, but, uh, it was, uh, it was a challenge as always. And, um, I enjoyed it very much. So wouldn't trade it for anything. I got it. Um, I know you worked in the finance world. Um, how did you ultimately get into real estate and what you're doing now, which in a way seems so far removed from what you, you know, the, the, the big finance world that you were in and fascinating at the same time? Yeah. So, uh, my fascination with real estate is, uh, you know, lifelong, but it started when, uh, when I was a kid, my dad's an architect. Um, and I grew up around construction, his designs, always talking about it, taking us to Frank, uh, Frank Lloyd Wright houses. Um, and he was always working on, you know, quirky homes, you know, for pretty wealthy folks in Cleveland, um, you know, weird apartment buildings in Akron, one-off restaurants here and there. And that was always my summer job was working on his uh, construction sites. And I just built up a love for it. Um, you know, not just the, you know, construction part, but also the, you know, the, the real estate aspect and what you can do with that and how you can change your life with that asset class. And uh, also the the art and architecture of it. And, um, you know, I am no artist. I am no architect, but uh, I do 
uh, fundamentally really love what I invest in. Um, and I owe that passion to, uh, to him. But, um, you know, when I was at, uh, at college, you know, one of the most important things that, that happened to me is I met my absolutely stellar, uh, business partner, Tom Higgins, um, who is a absolute stud, uh, so to speak in the, in the construction and, and development world. Um, and, you know, we started working together while we were still in school. And then, you know, immediately afterwards as well, uh, you know, on uh, properties that were near us in New York City. And, you know, my lifelong kind of real estate passion um, came through with those. Um, and we kept building on, um, on, you know, those smaller multifamily properties in New York City, you know, ended up with, you know, 10, 12, 13, 14, 15 of those. Um, and, you know, as the, uh, as the classic story goes that, you know, side, side work or side hustle kind of became the, the main job eventually. And so that's, that's where we are now. Wow. I did not know that. That is so impressive. While you guys were in school, you were doing this. And so a couple questions is where were you coming up with the funds? You know, I, I would imagine as students, you, you weren't exactly flush in, in, in what parts were they in the boroughs and how many units and were you flipping them or were you, were you keeping them or what, what did all that look like? Yeah, so we were uh, we were the opposite of flush, and uh, in some cases it was it was comical because we'd be you know closing on a ten million dollar asset, but uh, you know I've been eating ramen and hot dogs for the last last ten days. But uh, we've we've always worked um, with with external investors, so um, we've gone out and fundraised for each of those deals. Um, I, you know, we both have experience in you know pretty buttoned up uh, investment firms. Tom comes from you know family office real estate development as well as national developers um, you know I was at JP Morgan and Booz and Co and, and Sferica Capital doing all kinds of you know capital raises and deals so we can produce you know really good models really good materials and although you know we were a little young at the time um, they they had an impact and you know we went out to our our networks our professional networks but also you know friends and family to get started and uh and they you know always stepped up and, and contributed to us and actually every single one of those um investors from that period of our of our existence are current investors in our existing funds so it's nice they've kind of been along uh for the ride the whole time but um yeah it took a little while to build up the uh the war chest there um but uh you know we're getting there so so not to, to to drill down too deep, but just for clarification, while you're in college, and granted, college isn't very long, it's, it's four years, and who knows, maybe you didn't get going to junior or senior, I, I don't know. But I mean, what were the size of the deals then? And, uh, you know, because you said a $10 million, you know, deal, or what, what was the scope? Or were they a du- or were they a duplex in Queens for you know, 220 grand. I mean, I'm just making that up. Yeah. That, that, that $10 million one was definitely our, our biggest one back then. But, uh, you know, it's, it's an important question for our story because that the size of properties that we were generally buying, which were two, three, four, up to eight unit buildings in New York is super important for what Terra Capital does today and our current model. But they were largely, you know, these smaller buildings, we would, we would hear about them, we would send out, you know, little mailer campaigns to some of these, you know, quirky little neighborhoods in, in Brooklyn. You know, we, we locked down a couple that were in great areas in East Village, um, some in the Upper West Side. Um, and, uh, in general, 
anywhere from, you know, two to eight units is what we were doing back then. You know, in New York, those are, those are pretty big checks, uh, still, you know, those are, you know, in the mid single digits, million dollars total. But, uh, you know, after leverage, it was a very raisable amount of money for us. And uh, we were doing a good job for our investors at the time. So they they stayed on. Wow. So when you say after leverage, were you getting were you getting bank debt as well? We were. Um, we were getting bank debt. We were, um, you know, at the time, just using very typical, you know, 30 year AM loans. Um, not that exciting, but we were doing a ton of uh, construction work and we would mostly pay for that out of equity at the time. Our, our uh, view on the debt markets and how we use lenders has, has uh, become significantly more complex since then. But uh, we were, you know, doing it in a pretty old school way. And, um, you know, Tom and I, that's our background is, uh, is uh, renovation, construction, investment. So we would go in there and, um, you know, take a pretty rough, four unit building in a great place and turn it into something, you know, pretty special. And, um, we still have, um, you know, about a hundred units in New York, um, that we, that we still manage and, you know, some of the outcomes there and what the rent is today versus, you know, when we, when we bought it in the, you know, early 20 teens, um, it's pretty, pretty amazing trajectory. I'm just speechless because I'm so impressed with what you guys did. I'm like, holy cow, man. It, well, just it's impressive, period, but that young as well and, and that scale. And, and, and like you said, I mean, a hundred units in uh, our hometown of Cleveland, you know, on the, you know, in, in Lakewood is not a hundred units in, in the boroughs and, you know, East Village and Upper West Side. So that is, that is like just. So, so amazing that you guys did that. How did you deal with uh, rent control? You know, because I, I live in a heavy rent control mecca and, uh, you know, with dealing with getting tenants out that have been there since, you know, Columbus discovered America. Well, Roger, uh, in a, to put it, to put it uh, shortly, we left, you know, it's not a, it's not a sustainable market to, uh, to keep going in. So, you know, really 2000, 2018, 19, um, you know, in New York, it started to become a, a much less attractive market. And that's what brought us to the Midwest, which of course is where I'm, you know, from is where we're from originally. Um, and, uh, and so I was, you know, very happy with that, but we, you know, it gave us the, the impetus, the opportunity to step back and say, Hey, there's a lot of cities in the U S uh, there's a lot of people in the U S yeah, there's a lot of people in New York, but we've, we've got some pretty major opportunities in some of these other cities that might be overlooked, still have strong fundamentals, um, and where yields are significantly higher, we can drive way better returns than we ever did in New York. Um, and it pushed us to do that. Um, you know, we have always been, we're very due diligence forward. Um, you know, probably a lot more so than, than other, uh, multifamily investors in our, Kind of generation there, but um, and so we've always been very aware of, uh, of of rent control and stabilization in New York, and we've you know really limited our risk in our New York por portfolio to that, which is not the the cheapest thing to do. So we've come out all right in that overall you know scheme, but it's just too much risk. It defeats the purpose of real estate to be investing in a market where you know your asset might lose 30% of its value overnight just because of a piece of legislation. And we, we don't want to be working in that type of market anymore. You know, without getting too into the weeds on that, only because your, your, your markets are different and it's a different kind of a kind of a different model. But I have to ask the question just out of curiosity. Did you guys buy anybody out? Um, we, we never did buyouts, uh, because we, you know, just fundamentally not interested in that, 
risk level. But uh, you know, it's funny in some situations we got in properties that we were managing but didn't own, we would get offers in the other direction to buy them out uh, because it was such a standard thing that you know if you're in a rent stabilized building, you've been there long enough, you you're you're worth X dollars in a buyout. And uh, yeah, it's a, it creates a sort of weird asymmetric part of the market that is not super healthy long term. Um, and I think you know New York's starting to to you know hopefully figure that out. But um, it's uh, not a not a piece of the business we wanted to be part of. You know, when, when some of these long term tenants Im- impute their net worth, you know, that's that's part of it. You know, it's well, you know, I have basically no assets, but I could probably get my landlord to buy me out for fifty grand, so I'm worth about fifty grand. That's exactly right. But you peel back the onion one more layer and you actually take a look at the the true net worth of some of those some of those folks. And it's and it's a sad picture because there are, you know, people with fine six-figure jobs that have gotten into these units that are supposed to be reserved for people in need. And um there's actually a significant amount of the, you know, stabilized and controlled tenant base in New York that is, uh, you know, folks like that that are sort of taking up resources that aren't meant for them. Um, and, uh, and then still taking that buyout money. So it's, uh, you know, sad, sad picture in a lot of ways. Yeah. Well, w- one of my best friends who I've known my whole life, fellow Clevelander is worth about 10 mil. And he's, he's been in the same rent controlled apartment for over 30 years. And he, he thinks it's ridiculous, but he's not, he, he thinks it's just ridiculous, but you know, he's, he's not complaining about it. You made a comment that your, your due diligence forward in more so than other, uh, you know, multifamily operators. And I, I assume you meant like doing what you do. And is that because at the, the size that you're doing, even though you guys have been brilliantly figuring out a way to scale it, smaller buildings, it's just more, you know, basically local contractors that are flipping a property once every year, two years. This is, are, are you just bringing a level of sophistication to it that doesn't exist on that rung of the ladder? Yeah. I mean, I think that's a, that's a good way to put it. And, you know, maybe I could step back and, you know, kind of cover at a high level what we, what we focus on. But, you know, we're multifamily real estate investors that, that do it a little differently. As you mentioned, we're going after smaller properties. We've been trying to coin uh, the term uh, mini multi for a while now. Um, have heard, you know, some people use it. We like that. But, uh, you know, this is lower middle market real estate. And what we're talking about is specifically properties with anywhere from two to 15 units. And so these are really the smallest, you know, sort of apartment buildings out there. And, you know, this is the part of the market that is, you know, what we always call is too big for flippers, too small for developers. And so you're exactly right. It's a lot of these, you know, local contractors that are, 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 you know, walking into these jobs. Maybe they're doing the Burr strategy. Maybe not. Maybe it's, you know, they do one of these every 18 to 36 months or something like that. Um, but, you know, we do have larger scale competitors, but for the most part, it's, you know, local and, and, and mom and pop groups that, you know, aren't as, as sophisticated or well capitalized to do what we're doing, um, at scale. And so, you know, our business is all about scalability processes and, uh, making sure that we do every piece of this, you know, very headache ridden process of buying a multifamily property, right? Um, and that we can continue to keep doing it right each and every time, no matter how many properties we buy, um, and how, and no matter how frequently um, we buy a new property. Like right now, we're at you know anywhere from fifteen to twenty units per month um, that we close on, and so there's a lot of due diligence. And so, as a part of that, 
you know, we've really sort of dissected what a, what a property is. What are the most important pieces of it? You need to have a certificate of occupancy. You need to understand how the utilities are split out between different units. Um, you need to understand how the layout is structured. You need to understand whether or not you own the parking lot or you have an easement, et cetera, et cetera. There is a very, you know, long checklist that we go through and we do that on every single property. Our, you know, acquisitions analysts have to go and learn uh, every single piece of that checklist, tick every box. And that's a closing requirement for us to get past our, our due diligence process. Um, and every single property goes to investment committee and is reviewed on that basis. So we're really specific about due diligence. We are, you know, buying a lot of these smaller properties, some that were built in the late 1800s, early 1900s, and they might have structural issues. They might have plumbing issues and doesn't mean that we can't buy them. If they do, we can always fix that, but it's something that we need to know um, going in. Oh man. You know, I, I keep hearing, you know, so many, you know, most of the people I talk to, which you, you, you may have gathered, you know, or, or, in doing or, or not many, you know, multifamily, they're doing 200, 400 units and, 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 you know, they all want, it's like, they want the newer vintage, the newer, the better, right. For all the obvious reasons. And you guys are yeah. like on the complete other side of that. Not that that's all that you do, but you know, you're willing to take on a, a building where uh, 120 years old, just for clarification. And it's not to try to put you in a corner. It's just curiosity. I was looking at like, um, you know, your, 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 um, you know, track record on your website. And it seemed like a lot of them were small numbers, you know, of acquisitions of could even be 80 grand, you know, with CapEx of 30. And so I was wondering, you, know, you said two to 15 units. Where, where is the average? Is it, it, it looked like just it, you know, it, it a first glance is, it's, you know, duplexes, triplexes. But is it, has it been migrating more to, to, to the upper end of that scale? I'm just trying to get a sense of where the, the wheelhouse is or what you're mostly doing now. Yeah. So, um, some of our website numbers are probably a little, uh, little outdated. We just worked on that a few months ago, but the reality of the situation is we think of it on a per unit basis. And, you know, I could talk a little bit about how we, how we sell these properties, but, um, we, we do that on a, you know, per unit and cash flow basis. Um, okay. Predominantly, but you know, the way, the way we like to think of it is that, you know, we want to buy in the, you know, hundred thousand dollars per unit range. We want to be all in renovated in that kind of 150 to $170,000 per unit range. Um, and then we want to exit in that 225 to 227, um, range. And in some cases, you know, we've gone, uh, you know, a little bit higher than that. Um, and that is, you know, how we, how we tend to think of it. That said, um, you know, more to your question, we love duplexes, triplexes. Um, and we have, you know, a fair number of quads, but where we're really, uh, are really our bread and butter is that six to eight unit property that needs a lot of work, you know, anywhere from 20 to 50% of the total amount of money that we spend on the property is going to be in renovations. Um, so, you know, Maybe there is, you know, maybe it's, it's occupied, semi-occupied. Frequently there are some empty units. It's a property that's been forgotten, um, or not managed well. Maybe it was inherited five years ago from a, you know, family member who is self-managing. Um, and that person now, you know, doesn't think about it that much, hadn't really thought about it for a while. You know, we contact them. Most of our acquisitions are off market at this point, but we, get in touch with that owner 
Um, we take it off their hands at a very good discount. Um, and then we, you know, add a tremendous amount of value in renovations, lease it up, self-manage so that we, you know, get every, you know, last dollar out of that property. And that's, you know, that's the place where we do best because there are very few local groups that can repeatedly afford to buy six to eight unit apartment buildings. They're not cheap. You're, you know, getting close to a million dollars at that point. Um, and, uh, most of those local groups can only do that, you know, once every two years at most. Um, but we do it two or three times a month. So, um, that's our sweet spot. It makes the, uh, the renovations and construction side more scaled because you can have one slightly larger group do, you know, six or seven units at a time. Um, and that's where we really like to go, but we do. Um, you know, we just closed on a 15 unit building, uh, this week in Indianapolis. Um, we, you know, closed on a small portfolio of 16 units, um, at the end of December in Pittsburgh that, you know, was comprised of, you know, four, four different buildings. So average of, you know, four units per, um, and anywhere in that space, you know, we have a competitive advantage and a system to take those properties in. (laughs) Unbelievable. So are you, um, you know, you're, you're, you're doing off market deals and I know that everybody in, you know, um, that's doing the big, you know, 100, 200, 300 again, they say it's off market, but it's, it's, it's sometimes, uh, if not always kind of a misnomer of what that really means. In your world, I have something would tell me and correct me if I'm wrong. You really are getting off market and you're the only one talking to that owner. Is that correct? Oh yeah. So, uh, I love this, uh, this topic because this is the one of the, one of the pieces at, uh, at Terra that I, you know, specialize in. And I, you know, did acquisition strategies for larger companies, um, that were rolling up, you know, smaller companies for a long time. I did some similar acquisitions in real estate was, you know, slightly larger deals for, you know, when I was, when I was working for other people. Um, and I brought a lot of that, um, you know, kind of, Set of strategies and tactics and technology to this space in real estate to really drive these truly off-market communications. So, um, you know, our our process is you know nearly big data at the you know top of the funnel, and we are taking you know five, six, seven large-scale data sets in any given market, um, sort of overlapping and combining those so that we can get you know property address, unit count, a little bit of information about a property and who the owner is for each individual property, running it through a you know a handful of third-party um, you know vendors and kind of technology solutions to get contact information. Um, and then we're leveraging a host of uh, vendors for cold calls, emails, um, mailers, really any medium that you can imagine um, that a potential owner might have, we contact them. Um, you know, through that medium. And uh, then we have a, you know, a, a CRM that kicks out those potentially motivated leads to our acquisitions analysts. And they really are the only people talking to these sellers. Every once in a while, you know, you get somebody who's entertaining an offer, saw one of our mailers, wanted to learn more and see what the price was. Uh, but for the most part, you know, we're contacting people that hadn't thought about this property for a while. Um, maybe they missed a tax payment on it just because they weren't, you know, they didn't remember to pay it. It's a drag for them. They don't want to hire a manager. They don't know anything about real estate. It's one of 
at most two or three properties that they own. Um, and they're very happy to, um, you know, get it off their hands. And, um, we are all about, you know, building that one on one communication with a seller and bringing it to close. And that's what, you know, the, the folks that sit with, you know, with me here in New York, that's what they do. That's what they're trained to do is, um, is take that off market lead and bring it to close. And it's a really, it's a win, win, win situation because we get a fantastic deal. This seller who, for whatever reason, you know, doesn't think to, or doesn't want to go to a broker, you know, maybe they're embarrassed about the property. Maybe, um, they, you know, maybe they hadn't thought about it for a while. So it hadn't occurred to them to sell it, whatever it is, they get something off their plate and they get, you know, a nice check to walk away from, or they get to, you know, clear out a mortgage. And then the community has a massive, um, improvement because we take that property that might've been partially vacant. Um, we renovated up to really, you know, top of market standards. And I can talk a little bit about, you know, what that, what that specifically looks like. And, uh, then, you know, we've got, you know, kind of the next generation of renters, um, moving in. So we're really recycling a lot of these unused or underutilized units in really awesome neighborhoods of these, you know, tier two cities. And there's a mission factor to it as well. Being a Midwesterner, I really like to see that. Um, and see some of those awesome historical neighborhoods kind of brought back to life. Um, but you know, those are the the three wins, the seller, the buyer, and the community. Uh, you, you answered another question I was going to ask you because it, it, you were saying typically a hundred grand a door. I was thinking to myself in some of these markets, that actually sounds like a lot. Um, but so I'll, I was going to ask you about neighborhoods. Yes. Yeah, so you're going in where, you know, young professionals want to live, um, cause it's a cool, cool neighborhood, maybe some coffee shops, some amenities, some cool restaurants and this kind of thing. Yeah. That's, that's exactly what we're going for. So we did that in New York city and, uh, similar to New York city, a lot of these neighborhoods have, um, you know, it, it, it interesting side to them where it's where people really want to live. It's where they think is cool. Um, but there's not a lot of nice apartments for them to live. So they go live, you know, downtown or they go live, you know, somewhere off the, you know, kind of off the reservation there where, um, there is a, you know, nice new modern apartment building for them to live. And then they're constantly either commuting or traveling back to these cool neighborhoods. So there's significant demand to actually live in these neighborhoods. But for the, you know, high paid tenants that we're going after, um, there's not a lot of options. Um, and so what we ultimately deliver is, you know, what we like to call kind of a minus, which is very modern finishes, um, you know, laundry in unit. Um, it really, the interior of the unit looks like a luxury style building. Um, but there's obviously, you know, no common space. There's no gym. There's no doorman. There's nothing like that. But we offer that at a 30 to 35% discount in rent versus a large scale, you know, multifamily new development type property. Um, and so, you know, we get overwhelming, um, pings on, you know, new listings. We get, you know, in a week, you know, 150 plus people pinging for, um, to tour the property and rent. And we rent, you know, usually in less than, um, less than a week. So there's significant demand for the product that we're creating in these neighborhoods and, I, um, you know, especially during, uh, 2020, it was hard to travel everywhere. So I just moved to, to Pittsburgh so I could be closer to, um, a lot of our, um, a lot of our stuff. I lived in, in one of our renovated properties and it's to this day is like the best department that I've, 
ever had. It was awesome. It was right next to the cool coffee shops. It was next to the, you know, cool bars. I was walking around everywhere. It made, you know, it made Pittsburgh PA feel like, um, I was living in, uh, in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. So I, um, I, I think it's a, it's a great product and it's kind of borne out so far with the demand. Did, did you see a fair amount of beards and in, in vaping there? There's a tremendous amount of beards and vaping. I have to report that. Um, <laughs> there's uh, Pittsburgh is a is a. I don't know if you spent a lot of time there, but I know you you went you were in school in, in Cincinnati, right? So you were relatively close by. Pr- pr- prior to that, I, I did uh, a stint at a boarding school outside of Pittsburgh, and and I got expelled uh, on uh, April first of that year. It happened to be my my mother's birthday, but it, that that's a digression that that we don't need to go into right now. But yes, thank you very much. I am a Bearcat. Went to University of Cincinnati because unlike you, I. I I couldn't even step foot on Columbia, much less have a prayer to get in. But but anyway, yeah, go go, go ahead. Well, it's uh, it's um, you know I, I would like to know a lot more about that story, Roger. Um, so maybe <laughs> maybe after I, I get to hear about the expulsion, but um, but uh, def- and definitely go Bearcats. But uh, Pittsburgh is a a very curious culture. You know, it's um, there's a an amazing beer scene amazing coffee culture. The music scene is fantastic. Um, and it's all, you know, sort of under the radar and people don't think of Pittsburgh as being a cultural hub, but it is, it, but it's somewhere between, um, it's somewhere between Williamsburg and Brooklyn and Portlandia. Um, and so there's weird stuff going on there, but you know, if you're, you know, open-minded about it, it's a fun place to be. Well, coincidentally, I'm in Portland as we speak because I we, we have a second home up here and we just got here like two days ago and we, for the first time, we've owned the place for years, just coincidentally. Going back to an inference you made earlier, you were saying, I, you said you're self-managing as well. I believe that's what you said. Yeah, that's right. Uh, to control that that variable, are you keeping these properties, or are you or are you flipping them, or both? So that is uh, the most important part of our model. Not maybe not the most important, but it's one of the most important parts. Is not how we buy, not how we manage, not how we renovate, which we think is you know innovative and and drives returns above what others do, but. It really has to do with how we exit. So, you know, a lot of people are doing, um, you know, single family homes, flip it, make a good profit. Maybe they do duplexes. Um, maybe they do, you know, have, own three or four at a time, whatever. And then, of course, there are, you know, large scale aggregators of those. Um, but what we are doing um, is, you know, something similar to the large scale single family home aggregators, but in the mini multi space. And so we aggregate these properties into portfolios of 150 plus units for sale to institutional buyers and larger PE funds, family offices, groups like that. Um, And that is where we really juice our returns because this group of buyers are extremely hungry for larger assets where they can write check sizes that are above a certain level. Um, they would never go after individual assets that small, but they love portfolios because they can get that lower middle market exposure. They have a higher cap rated entry than they would with a large scale multifamily property. They can geographically hedge because it's not just one little corner of Pittsburgh that they're buying in. It's across the whole city. Um, and then, uh, you know, at the end of the day, there's just not that many individual 150 plus unit assets in our markets. So 
we're providing, um, you know, a, a need, we're meeting a certain demand for our end buyers with these portfolios. So, you know, we like to refer to it as portfolio building, portfolio arbitrage, portfolio premium. Um, but that's how we kind of turn that $250,000 door value up into the two seventy-five dollars to $300,000 door value when we sell as a portfolio. And there are, you know, comps that are above that. Um, but that's what we like to, you know, kind of target to for our um, internal view. Um, and we're more conservative on our, our modeling, of course, for external stuff, but that's how, that's how we like to think of it. So, you know, there's a couple different ways to phrase that, whether it's portfolio building or, you know, we've, you know, used the term institutionalizing the lower middle market or sort of securitizing, uh, mini multi assets. Um, and bundling them so that institutional buyers can, you know, get exposure to that space. Um, but, you know, in the same way that we're taking advantage of that too big for flippers, too small for developers market gap on entry, we're taking advantage of this. You know, there's not enough large scale multifamily assets for larger investors to go after piece on the back end. Um, and so minimizing entry costs, maximizing exit prices per unit, you know, that's the, the front and the back of funnel of our you know whole process. So that's how we exit. Um, and uh, if in during a process we're still a buyer at the best offer, then we'll buy the properties or the portfolio and we'll you know, roll it into our core fund. But for the most part, you know, we get really really strong offers from external groups and we sell. Wow, man. So so that so the management is just in the interim. Uh, it, it, as you're aggregating and, and, and accumulating and getting up to, let's say, 150. So that might take a couple few years-ish or whatever. So what you're saying is the first ones, you know, you, you're going to have for a couple of years, you manage them until, until you sell them. That's exactly right. And we, you know, we aggregate them. It takes time to finish the renovations. Um, but we like to really manage a fully leased up, 100% cash flowing property for at least 18 months before selling because these institutional buyers what they like is a you know is a institutional grade asset they want something that has real cash flows you know we can definitely get pro forma credit for you know recently um, renewed leases and stuff like that but they want to look at a quality of earnings they want to look at audited 12 18 months trailing financials and we, you know, want the control and be able to be in there ourselves managing the properties to make sure that they maximize cash flow and really get the most um, at exit. And so that's a key part of our strategy. It's great. The cash flow in the interim is fantastic, but it's, you know, it's all about showing that strong cash flow at exit for us. Um, and there's so many things that local management um, can't get to, you know, the, the, Number one thing is that local managers are, you know, two to three percentage points more expensive than, um, than us. Uh, and so we can automatically kind of reduce our cash basis just by, you know, charging, uh, much less for management internally. But then on top of that, you know, a lot of local managers don't take full advantage of, um, website listings in our markets. Um, they're not listing on apartments.com and stuff wow. like that in Pittsburgh. It's crazy. Um, they, they don't offer free first month's rent to increase their, you know, underlying rent basis. They don't go after tax basis reductions. So they get reassessed on taxes and they just say, okay, we'll pay more taxes. But that's, that's insane. You can go and you can appeal it and you don't win every time, but you win enough times that it makes a lot of sense to have a system in place to do that. They don't use, 
um, you know, low efficiency or rather high efficiency appliances, stuff like that, because they don't care. Um, it's not their money, but it is ours. So we like to manage it ourselves um, and get everything out of it that we can. Okay. Um, are you seeing any, um, you know, you said you're renting these things within a week and we're, it's now uh, January, 2023. And in, you know, the smile states where everything was go, go, go. I think in 2021, I think rents were up in some of these markets as much as 30%. It was, you know, crazy. Uh, and now it's, you know, it's not the opposite, but, you know, you know, uh, vacancies are increasing, rents are decreasing. In terms of the, what are you seeing in terms of the neighborhoods and what you guys are doing? Is it, is it have you seen a blip or not really? Uh, if anything, um, we're, we're accelerating a little bit. So uh, we haven't talked a, a ton about, you know, where we do this, this model that Terra Capital does, but that's an, that's an important piece for us, both at the MSA level and at the neighborhood level. But uh, what we see in our, what we call submarkets or neighborhoods or, or neighborhood groupings, we see continued high single digit, low double digit rent growth. Now, some of that is inflation pushed. Some of that has to do with the same trends that have been generating higher rents for the last 18, 24 months. But a lot of that has to do with um, continued uh, dampeners on supply and new supply being added to markets while there's increased um, demand just in population growth and high value population growth. So our markets are ones where every single year, there's steady as you know, the top line number steady as she grows, you know, middle single digits population growth. But you peel the onion back one layer and you see that, you know, that's the net effect of a lot of medium cost location technology and business services jobs entering, a lot of healthcare jobs entering, you know, UPMC, um, IUP in Indianapolis and, uh, a host of hospital systems in, in Columbus, but not the least of which being OSU are expanding every single year, their footprint, their size, and their job count. And that shows up in employment. It shows up in population. And then uh, education, of course, as well. These are all education center markets. And these are long-term, extremely sticky, at least partially government-subsidized um, employment bases that are here for the long run. And you're you're seeing extreme growth in those areas and then netting out of you know these you know kind of rust belt blue collar type jobs and people that you know had those or no longer have them whatever that story is are leaving retiring moving away so you know we kind of sneak in to these markets that you know the the baseline you know population growth isn't telling you that it's exploding but if you look at it in a little bit more detail it's a really quality growth that you're getting and so um, we continue to see a lot of rent growth um, from you know more and more people that want to be in our really cool neighborhoods that we're in, and just not that much housing stock being added. Wow, makes so much gosh darn sense. So you're in you're in Pittsburgh, Indy, Columbus. What are the other markets? Um, so we're in those three in the Midwest right now. Um, we have a handful of other markets that we, uh, you know, are kind of in the crosshairs there that we would love to go to, um, in the next six to 12 months. And we're starting to work on those. Kansas City is certainly on the list. Louisville, um, Cincinnati's up there. God, I wish that, uh, that Cleveland fit our parameters, but unfortunately, um, it's just, you know, not there, especially on the, in the employment trends. But uh, we are very data-driven, um, analytics-first market people who... What the, our process is a tremendous amount of analytics 
on why the market is good, you know, good affordability, good population growth. We want, you know, as I talked about, the right type of of population growth and uh, a host of other of other things, some of which are, you know, regulatory and structural. And then we like to start off with a small deal, see how it goes. Um, and then if it if it works out the way that we think it does and we've proved it with our own money, then you know it's time to to bring investors' money in there as well and add a market. But you know, we're hyper focused on those three right now. Um, but we would love to add another three by the end of the year, which um, you know, we're on pace to do. Do you do you know, um, Ray, are there any other companies that are doing what you were doing? You know, I think that there are uh other groups that do something somewhat similar. I think the the regimented and scalable way in which we do it is a differentiator versus any of our competitors. Um, but I couldn't name you a, a brand that specifically does um, mini multi-portfolio building, especially not in the in the Midwest. And to be to be you know more specific about it, in the cases where we do you know go after an on-market deal, um, or we're talking to an off-market seller who's gotten another offer. It's it's never another group. We it's one of the reasons why we win in those competitive situations is because we have a, a a brand and a website and capital behind us and a reputation in the market for doing it all the time um, that sellers feel comfortable closing with us. Um, there we don't. There is no you know Terra two rolling around in our markets yet. So, you know, the, the long answer is I think there's people doing something, you know, somewhat similar, but maybe in markets that we're not as interested in. And the short answer is, you know, exactly what we do and where we do. We haven't seen anybody. Yeah, I have. That's why I ask. I haven't seen anybody. Um, and how are you guys, um, how are you capitalizing these? And, and do you have any institutional money? Is it retail investors? What does all that look like? Yeah. So, um, you know, for the most part, um, we've raised from our individual networks that have been with us for years and years from the beginning over time. And it seems like every single syndicated deal that we ever did, we added, you know, one or two groups that was either, you know, a high net worth individual or a smaller family office. And then when we started doing, um, funds and working in the Midwest, actually a- another large group of our investor base are other real estate private equity funds. That like the returns and invest either via sidecar or part of their main fund because they work in our markets, but they don't have the infrastructure to do, you know, mini multi investing. Um, and they like getting that exposure and diversification as part of their current Columbus fund or current Indianapolis fund. Um, and so we have groups like that, um, in there as well. You know, we are working towards a larger fund, um, you know, sort of towards the end of 2023 is when we'll, you know, hopefully start going out for that. Um, and that's the first time where we would be raising enough money where we would want to go after um, institutional investors. Uh, but for the most part, it's been, you know, private equity funds, family office and um, high net worth to date. But, um, you know, just like anything else, we want to make that fundraising piece of this whole puzzle something, you know, it's not something you can ever really automate, but we want it to be something that is just a reliable long-term source of capital. And so we're always looking for that, that type of partner. And that's what we, that's what we look for, um, are people that are going to be around for a long time. They understand what we do. They like the returns. 
Um, and we can count on them for fund after fund after fund. What's the size of your, how many funds have you raised and what's the size of your last one? Yeah. So um, our last one was a $20 million fund, which we are um, you know, actually still um, working on uh, finishing up. So there's still a little bit of room in there. Um, but we've already started deploying that. We're about um, a quarter of the way deployed already. We launched that um, in the in the fall of this uh, of 2022. Um, and then before that, we had a five million dollar fund um, that was specifically targeting just Pittsburgh. And then the fund that we're you know starting to work on now, which will be somewhere between eight and ten MSAs, um, we're targeting a seventy five to eighty five million dollar fund, which will be the same. Um, you know, it, it, we kind of work backwards from the equity through to the debt to the per unit price because what we want to do is be able to build at least 150 unit portfolio in each MSA with a given fund. And so that's how we, you know, kind of think about the total dollar amount that we're raising. And, uh, you know, that's the, that's the path that we're on. But, you know, we, we think that there are probably, uh, 20 good MSAs for our model in, in the U.S. And probably 50 total doable MSAs in the US. So we have a lot of runway for larger and larger funds. We always keep our existing markets in future funds so that, you know, we keep the advantage of our reputation and network in those places. Um, and that's, uh, you know, that's how we're, we're trying to grow, you know, is just snowballing off of good markets. Mm. Wow. Very, very interesting. What what approximately is the size of your, you know, and, and I'm, you know, I, I feel like I want to apologize for asking these just, you know, straightforward questions. What the heck? And that is, what's the size of your overhead? Yeah, that's uh, that's it's it's your show, Roger. You can you can ask whatever straightforward questions you want. Um, our our overhead right now, um, our our monthly out the door, um, is about twenty eight five. Oh, oh no! Um, I was asking number headcount. I was. It wasn't that straightforward of a question. Oh, okay. Um, but uh, yeah, so our, our current headcount is just seven. So you know, we're we're seven folks in our kind of main thing. But we, you know, I didn't talk too much about our development strategy. But um, you know, we are sort of business builders of these of these. You know, to suit our lower middle market assets, we're business builders of our you know, lower middle market partners. So, you know, some of our contractors that we work with started out alone, or it was just two guys. Now they're five, we're their only client for the most part. So, you know, are those employees, are those not employees, you know, technically no, but you know, we're the only people that they work with. They're technically still contractors and we kind of built their business up. So when you include them, you know, we're up into the, you know, well up into the teens and total, you know, people that we would consider group members, and that we have weekly meetings with and constant check-ins with. And when we're, you know, in market, which is every other week, um, you know, we get a beer with them or grab dinner or, you know, walk, walk the site and, and uh, shoot the S word. And that's really, um, you know, the way that our, our team is built up. But, uh, you know, we do, we do have that, you know, steady monthly out the door kind of cash basis that we use for our um, off market strategies, right? We we have vendors that we work with, et cetera. So we do also have that, you know, we, we always say it's 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 right around 285, but that's, you know, we're paying our um, vendors for cold calls, vendors for mailers, et cetera. So um, 
you know, there's a there's a fund cost, there's a there's a cash cost to um, to generating um, all these leads, and um, you know, obviously that that factors into returns, but um, it's an important part of of our you know little ecosystem that we've built um, out of individuals and um, and vendors, you know, really really across the world at this point. But man, oh man. Are you the guy, Ray, because you said that, you know, you moved to Pittsburgh and you spend time in these markets even before we hit record. I think you said you're spending half your time on the road and half in uh, Williamsburg. Um, are you yourself looking at all these uh, acquisitions, you know, before the trigger gets pulled? When we first started, that was 100% the case. Um, now there is always somebody from our team that walks a property at least twice before closing. Um, it is very frequently the case that either Tom, my partner, or myself make it to a property just because we're there so frequently, you know, we'll stay an extra four hours and walk all the properties that are on the pipeline. But we're getting to the point now. And, um, you know, it's a that more than any other, you know, number figure or market or anything like that is really the psychological jumping off point for us where you know, sometimes we do close on properties that, you know, I've never walked before, which uh, for, for, you know, a, a group of people that is so due diligent, intensive, and, um, you know, really focused on the, on the specifics of a deal um, is a, you know, piece of control that is a little bit difficult to let go of. But, um, you know, we've put the systems and people in place that, to be completely honest, they do a better job than we do most of the time on, on these uh, due diligences anyway. So, we're comfortable with it, but um, you know, as we continue to scale, that'll be increasingly the case that you know we're we're buying properties that I personally have not seen, although my you know analysts have been to multiple times. Got it. Fantastic, uh, man. I this has been for me a just a what a breath of fresh air of a conversation because what you're doing is so it's so simple but yet innovative in its simplicity. Um, how, how how would one contact you? Find out more about Terra Capital, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, so we have a, a, a intake form on our website, which is usaterra.com. Uh, very patriotic, and uh, <laughs> we <laughs> welcome uh, welcome folks to uh, to come on there. We've we've actually got some interesting stuff about our model and renovations. We've got a cool 3D rendering of a of a um, uh, I think it's a triplex that we um, that we uh, put on Matterport and you know finished renovating, so you can see actually a before and after of what one of our you know typical properties kind of looks like. Um, and uh, we you know very much so welcome uh, a reach out by uh, by that form. And um, you know what I always tell people, and you know maybe it's obvious from this conversation, but there's it, it, for whatever reason I don't maybe there's something wrong with me. I don't know what it is, but Tom's got it too. Uh, there's nothing we love more than talking about multifamily real estate, specifically mini multi. I mean, it's, uh, you know, it verges on obsession at some points, but, uh, you know, there's that, uh, that meme of that guy who's, you know, kind of talking very loudly into a, into a girl's ear at, at a bar. And that's us talking about multifamily on the weekend. <laughs> so, um, you know, long winded way of saying, you know, we welcome any reach outs and conversations. We'd love to chat about, chat about it, whether you're, you know, doing something similar, interested in investing with us, interesting in partnering with us, or or interested in selling to us. Um, you know, we're we're an open uh, open hub there. Got it, Ray. Fantastic, and I look forward to doing this again in in a year or so. And uh, keep on keeping on, and very very impressive what you're doing. Awesome. Well, thanks, Roger. Um, I am extremely grateful for the uh, opportunity to be on here. It was. Uh, 
fantastic as always and a complete pleasure and uh, look forward to catching up soon. And I, I'm not going to let you forget about that expulsion story. I want to hear it. Well, I'll tell you in a minute, but you know what? Uh, it'd be interesting if the next time we do this, you, you, you have a beard by that point. We'll see. Enough time in Williamsburg. You know, I don't know. I'm starting. I'm start, I've got a little bit of a scruffle today, but it's a Friday. I don't know if that counts. <laughs> All right. Okay, Ray, we'll end with that. Talk to you. 